Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There is a dusty old copy of classic fairy tales hidden deep within the children's section of your local library. Within its faded cover, stories of heroism, nobility, and true love abound. Stories that fill the hearts of young dreamers everywhere. While surrounded by the stories of Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever Afters, a sinister tale of rat infestation, broken promises, and the disappearance of an entire city reside. The Pied Piper legend began in Hamelin, Germany during the Middle Ages. As the tale unfolds, the village suffers from a rat plague and feels hopeless. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, a strange individual wearing pied clothing shows up to the mayor, offering to rid the city of its problem in exchange for 1,000 guilders. The mayor agreed, and with the help of a magical pipe, he moved all the rats to a nearby shoreline, where they were swept away. However, the mayor was unwilling to pay when it came time for the payment. Visualizing a rat infestation was already traumatic enough, Yet, the story takes an even darker turn. After being ripped off, the piper returned to Hamlin on St. John and Paul's Day while the adults attended church. The children were then lured out of their homes by magical music from his pipe. Where exactly they went depends on which version is told, either to a lake or deep in a cave. But what does remain certain is that none of them were ever seen again. A few were left behind, one was crippled and couldn't keep up. Another deaf, so he didn't hear the musical notes. 
plus another blind child who couldn't follow where the others went. When the church finished and the survivors recounted what happened, there was no doubt what had occurred, and it has been remembered ever since. The earliest mention of the story seems to have been on a stained glass window placed in the church of Hamlin in the 1300s. The window was described in several accounts between the 14th and 17th centuries. It was destroyed in 1660. Based on the surviving descriptions, a modern reconstruction of the window has been created by historian Hans Doberton. It features the colorful figure of the Pied Piper and several figures of children dressed in white. The window was generally created in memory of this tragic historical event for the town. Hamlin Town records also apparently start with this event. The earliest written record is from the Town Chronicle and an entry from 1394, which reportedly states, it's been a hundred years since our children left. Although research has been conducted for centuries, explanations for this historical event are only sometimes accepted as accurate. In any case, the rats were first added to the story in a version from 1559 and are absent from earlier accounts. This famous tale of lore has been subject to many theories. Some theories suggest that the children died from natural causes such as disease or starvation, and the piper symbolized death. It has been suggested that overpopulation by the 13th century led to the oldest sons owning all the land and power, leaving the others as serfs, which led to the immigration theory. It has also been suggested that one reason the immigration of the children was never documented was that the children were sold to a recruiter from the Baltic region of Eastern Europe, a common practice at the time. All local accounts from the episode indicate that it occurred on the 26th of June, which coincides with pagan midsummer celebrations. This has caused many to ponder if the kids were taken away by a heathen shaman to partake in one of these bonfire rituals, and then either directed to a monastery or executed by local Christians. Several theories have suggested that the disappearance of the children were linked to a mass psychogenic illness called dancing mania, or as I like to call it, couple too many tequilas. In the 13th century, dancing mania outbreaks were common, including one that occurred in 1237, in which many children jumped and danced a great distance across Europe, in a similar manner to the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, which originated around the same time. Others have suggested that the children of Hamelin left for a pilgrimage, a military campaign, or even a new children's crusade, which is said to have occurred around 1212, but have never returned to their parents. They see the unnamed Piper as the leader or the recruitment agent, to avoid the wrath of the church or the king, the townspeople made up this story, rather than record the facts. There are still lessons to be learned from a mysterious account like this. Keep your promises, avoid rats, and exercise caution, especially around mysterious musicians. I'd like you all to accompany me on a voyage through imagination, a place that lies just between shadow and light, and as Mark Twain put it, a place where the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. 
Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Our town doesn't get many visitors. The roads leading through it don't come from anywhere important. And they don't go anywhere important either. Hell, I don't even think we rate a drop of ink on most maps of the area. You've never heard of it. I'm almost sure. But for 96 people on the planet, Bertrand, Montana is home. I once heard a rumor that Bertrand is the oldest city in America. I don't mean we've been around the longest, of course, but if you add up all the ages of our citizens and divide that number by the number of citizens we have, well, let's just say you'd be hard-pressed to find another town in the homeland where the average age is 73 years old and counting. There are no children here, and there likely will never be again. Not in Bertrand. The youngest among us, Tommy Bellwether, he's 62. When it happened, young Tommy was 13 years old, short for his age, and the most insolent little bastard you ever laid eyes on. Now he runs the laundromat in town, always armed with a bright smile, a kind word, and a Colt 45. Don't ask me why he stuck around, because I don't know. I'm not sure why any of us have. After everything that happened, everything we went through, you might think we couldn't get out of here fast enough. Oh, some of us did, of course. But the rest of us stayed. Where we are, Bertrand. And Bertrand is us. And it's all we know in this world. We're all still wounded, and some of us pretty deep. But I suppose nothing can heal old scars like the familiarity and comfort of home. It all started in July of 1968. It was a bad time for America, but a good time for Bertrand. We were so small and insignificant that we always felt a bit removed from the rest of the country. Still, there were upwards of 400 people living here in those days, and children too, plenty of children. Three of them, all under the age of eight, belonged to old Sandra Hill. She was beautiful back then, a bonafide 10 although I'd never have told her that. Her husband was the deputy to the town marshal, and more gung-ho than any young lawman you've ever heard of. He was also very devoted to his wife, and she to him, and not even the most lustful fellow in town would think of coming between the two. 
Anyway, Sandra was friendly in those days with my sweet Irene, God rest her soul. Our only child, Jody, was around the age of the oldest hill child, and they had frequent play dates. While the children gallivanted around, Sandra and my Irene would sip tea out on the porch in the warm months and talk for hours on end. Irene would come home and ceaselessly regale me with the tales of Wendell and Sandra Hill, which bored me terribly, though I usually made an attempt to at least half-listen. But on this particular night, Irene said something I found very interesting indeed. Say, have you heard of any ice cream trucks around town? I responded, of course, in the negative. Nobody in Bertrand owned an ice cream truck. Of that I was sure. And the idea of somebody driving clear out here to peddle frozen treats to our sparse population was frankly laughable. Why do you ask, I added, almost as an afterthought. Well, because little Polly Hill claims that she's seen one driving about, she responded. Sandra told me about it this afternoon. She says Wendell isn't worried, that nobody else has mentioned anything strange and something about children having imaginations, of course, but she did seem a bit frightened. I agreed with Wendell that the likelihood of an ice cream truck in Bertrand was low, and that a child's daydream was a far more realistic explanation. But I still felt somewhat uneasy. If there was indeed somebody driving an ice cream truck around without anybody knowing, that could very well mean our children were in danger. We were removed from the world, as I said, but we weren't naive. Predators could come to our town as well as any other. This is the first time hearing about it, sweetheart. But I think we should warn Jody again about, you know, not taking things from strangers, just to be safe. Irene agreed, and the two of us walked into Jody's room. It was a short conversation. She hadn't seen an ice cream truck, and of course she wouldn't take anything from strangers. Even if it was something as delicious as ice cream, she said as she rolled her eyes. Satisfied, we let the matter alone. And there it rested, untouched, for almost a week. It was Jody who saw it first. She and I were walking out of a matinee at our town cinema. Our local one-screen movie joint. I don't recall what film we saw. We strode leisurely down the bright sun-baked street, shielding our eyes with our hands in a funny sort of salute. After a couple of blocks, the crowd from the movie had dissipated, and it was just she and I. As we walked and talked, her voice began to trail off. I looked down at her and saw she was peering down a side alley, at the end of which was another road, parallel to the one which we stood. I asked her what she was looking at. I thought I saw that ice cream truck you told me about, she responded with a slight mystic tone to her voice. Worried and a bit intrigued, I squinted my eyes into the shadowed alley, but could see no vehicles on the other side. Are you sure? I asked. It doesn't look like anything's over. I paused, raising my hand to my forehead. I could suddenly feel a headache coming on, sharp and acute. It felt like it was directly between my eyes, about an inch or two behind my skull. A strange sensation, to be sure, but that's all it was at the time. My daughter asked if I was okay, and I responded in the affirmative. As we continued our march down the street, though the headache grew more and more noticeable, I began to worry a bit. We turned a corner, and I kept my eyes fixated on the ground, focused on the weeds growing from the cracks in the sidewalk until, Daddy, look! There it is! I jerked my head upward, and there, approaching us in the road from a distance of approximately a hundred yards, was an ice cream truck. 
My head exploded with pain. Pain that seemed to course in waves through every inch of my body. I fell to the ground, trembling, unable to even scream. I saw my daughter through a wall of tears, standing limply, her head dangling slightly to the side, as if in some kind of trance. She seemed utterly unconcerned with me, though I lay writhing beside her shoes on the concrete. Joe. Jody, I croaked out through moans. The pain was exquisite, sharper and more real than I have ever experienced. Still, my first thought was to get her away from the ice cream truck, which I could hear slowly creeping along the road. Above the hum of the engine, I could hear a melody, played in happy chimes. Pop goes the weasel. I forced myself to turn toward the truck. It was passing right beside us. I could only glance at its side long enough to see a caricature of a man's face, grinning widely on a baby blue background, mouth open and chewing on something, presumably some kind of frozen treat. Something was written in a half circle below the image, but in my awful state, I couldn't tell what it said. The pain was severe beyond words and unrelenting, and I could do nothing but slump, half-conscious, onto the curb. Dad? Dad! Dad! Jody was shaking me fiercely. I awoke in an instant and scrambled to my feet, grabbing hold of my daughter's wrists in both hands. Jody, the truck! Where is the truck? What truck? She asked. She was either the world's greatest actress or dead serious. She had no idea what truck I was talking about. The truck! The ice cream truck that was just here! I replied in disbelief crouching my face down close to hers to illustrate the gravity of the situation. A dull ache was left in my head where the pain had been. It felt like someone had bored through my tear ducts with an awl. Ice cream truck? Oh, a dawning realization mixed with genuine, confused innocence crept over her face. Right. I don't know where it went. What happened to you? I got... I had a headache. Wait, what do you mean you don't know where it went? Didn't you see it go somewhere? No, she replied simply. Again, she seemed almost to be in a trance. Let's go home. We're almost there. Two days later, Sandra and Irene sat out on our porch, rocking in the cushion swing and talking so fast it'd make your head spin. Both were wearing sleeveless floral blouses and nursing iced teas, and beads of sweat ran down each of their foreheads. It seemed to be actually hotter than hell outside. My wife called me outside and instructed me to tell Sandra what had happened. How Jody and I had seen the ice cream truck. I wasn't keen on spreading such a bizarre tale, but the ladies persisted and I spilled everything. The headache, the music, the trance-like state of my daughter in the aftermath. Sandra listened intently, at one point spilling a bit of tea down her face during a distracted sip. She dabbed herself with a napkin almost absent-mindedly as she heard and her eyes never left me. The second I finished speaking, Irene turned her attention to Sandra. All right, now tell him. Tell me what, I asked with a hint of dread. This didn't sound good. Sandra took a deep breath. I think our children are in danger. All of them. Polly saw the ice cream truck last week, and you and Jody saw it too. But there's more. Two little boys came walking into Polly's class late yesterday. They were both holding ice cream bars. 
when the teacher asked them where they'd gotten them and why they were late, they said they were talking to a man named Edward in an ice cream truck. Jesus Christ, I muttered, trying to keep cool. How did you find out about this? Polly's teacher told me, and a couple of the other moms. But it gets worse. Mary Sutherland's daughter, Jacqueline, always has some kind of new imaginary friend. And apparently, the latest friend's name is Edward. And he's an ice cream man. Mary didn't think anything of it until we spoke to the teacher. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean... Wait, Sandra said, shooting me an earnestly worried look. I glanced over at my wife. She bit her lip, eyes fluttering wildly, nervously around. Last night, I asked all my children if they had recently met or heard of a man named Edward. Polly said no, but I could tell she was lying. And Jack, he refused to answer entirely. And Victoria? I responded, inquiring after the youngest Hill child, scarcely older than three. Sandra looked down at her lap. She clapped her hands together and shouted, Ice cream, ice cream, over and over again. I stood up abruptly. Let's go talk to Jody, I said to Irene. Sandra followed us. The three of us crowded around my only child's bedroom door. I gave it a light knock and called her name. She almost immediately opened it, clearly delighted to have company. We stepped into her room and she had a dollhouse and other toys spread out on the floor. She returned to her playthings as I began to question her as casually as I could. Say, Jody, do you remember that ice cream truck we saw the other day? She glanced up at me briefly, but didn't respond. Within a few seconds, her toys had her attention again. Have you seen it around? Again, no response. I wasn't one to push my child to speak when she didn't want to, but I tried one more question. Do you know a man named Edward? At this, she set her toys down and fixated her eyes on mine. She looked, what was it, surprised? Scared? To this day, that expression haunts my dreams and a good deal of my waking thoughts, too. You're not supposed to know about him, she said with an air of accusation. I crouched down so my eyes were level with hers. Who is he? I asked. He's the ice cream man, but Dad, you're really not supposed to know about him. That's why he made your brain hurt. She paused for a moment, then added, almost as an afterthought. He'd be really mad if he heard you asking about him. Another week went by, and I had gotten home from work, and I walked past my daughter's closed bedroom door. I could hear her playing in there, hear her singing, but I couldn't make it out. With a light smile on my face, I pressed my ear against her door to listen, and as I did, the words became clearer. A penny for a spool of thread penny for a needle that's the way the money goes pop goes the weasel it was the last time i ever heard my daughter sing word gets around in a town like ours even back then in our heyday and by this point everyone knew something was wrong none of the adults besides me had seen anything though nor heard the music they simply had to take the word of practically every child in town that there was an ice cream truck nearby and it was presumably being driven by a man named Edward. There was an emergency town meeting in which Tommy Bellwether's father Lionel 
sheepishly suggested that this was nothing more than an elaborate joke on the part of the children. After all, his own son, then 13 years old, hadn't seen anything, nor had any of the youth older than he. This notion was respectfully but firmly shut down by many of the citizens, who found it difficult to believe that three-year-olds who barely learned to speak could be in on such a thing. And of course, there was the matter of my own eyewitness testimony. This truck was real, and everyone knew it. It was decided that children should be accompanied at all times, and everyone in the marshal's department pulled extra shifts patrolling the streets, the most eager, of course, being Sandra's husband, Wendell. These measures seemed appropriate, if not entirely adequate, to quell the town's worry. But in the end, there was nothing more we could do. We could only watch in disbelieving horror only two nights later. The night it all went wrong. It was around one in the morning. Irene and I had recently moved Jody into the bedroom adjacent to ours as a safety precaution. The way our house was laid out, she literally couldn't get out of her bedroom without crossing through ours. The moon shone through the bedroom window, shades undrawn and cracked open to let in a bit of summer night's air. My wife and I both awoke to the sound of Jody's bedroom door creaking open. Irene got out of bed and began to walk toward Jody, who was standing in the shadow of her doorway. The moonlight reflected against her bare feet. I felt deeply uneasy, but it took my brain a moment to process why. A familiar melody was gently breezing in through the window. Jody didn't even look at us. She just took a step forward, then another, making her way toward our bedroom door. Irene made to step in front of her, then suddenly froze. She could not move. What the hell? She shrieked, calling my name. Help! Help! Stop her! But I was frozen too. I could speak, move my eyes, and swivel my head, but everything below my neck was stuck in place. I was powerless to do anything but watch our daughter as she walked out of our bedroom, her loose blonde curls bouncing gently as she went. Oh, we screamed, of course. We heard her walk down the stairs and out the front door, and screamed our throats raw. But we could do no more. And through the window, as the music grew, other screams from other houses, each sounding as anguished as ours, poured in. Honey, look! Irene sobbed in despair. I turned my head as far as I could, and as the ice cream truck passed our house, my wife and I watched as Jody crossed the front lawn. Neither of us were screaming anymore. We only gazed on in horror as our daughter joined a throng of young children, all from the town, all trailing behind the slow-moving vehicle, locked together in a haunted march. Some of the youngest children held the hands of the older ones as they walked, and the infants were carried along in their arms. The truck rolled along, and I could see that it was the same one I had encountered before. This time, though, there was no blinding pain in my head, and my view was as clear as could be. The picture of the man on its side remained, with an inhumanly wide smile that revealed a mouthful of not frozen treats, but of tiny, bite-sized children. Below the face were printed, in a sweeping half-circle, the following words. All kids scream for Edward's ice cream. I was crying by this point, but I couldn't move my arms to wipe my eyes. Struggling to blink away my tears, I could barely make out one last horrifying detail as the truck crept further away. A springy antenna stuck out from the roof, 
and around its base lay a puddle of dark liquid. The antenna waved gently back and forth with the motion of the truck, and at the end of the antenna was the severed head of Sandra's husband, Wendell. The deputy marshal hat still perched atop it. About ten minutes later, myself, Irene, and the rest of the adults in town began to regain mobility, and you better believed we hunted high and low. But it was too late. Far too late. The ice cream truck and our children behind it had already turned the corner, vanishing from view and from Bertrand forever. The music had trailed off, the screams had ceased to pour through the open window, and the summer night was still and silent once more. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. <laughs>